Welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. We are so excited to have you join us. This podcast is based on a book that I wrote called Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. In the book, and what we're aiming to do on this podcast, is to tell the story of how individuals in Boston reacted during an exceptional political and economic crisis lasting between 1763 and 1776. Before we kick off the history, as we will in every episode, I'm going to be introducing Kristen, who's going to be introducing the beers. Yay! I'm so excited to talk about our first beer pairing, but first, we need to give you a reminder to please not follow the example of colonists. (laughs) This should become evident by the end of this podcast series, but what we're telling you to do is please always drink responsibly. For the first episode, we are highlighting Mob Scene IPA from Liquid Riot Bottling Company in Portland, Maine. Thank you so much to them for providing us with these beers. We're so excited to kick things off with them. So Mob Scene comes in at 6.5% ABV. All right. Yeah, it's in a 16-ounce can, so let's get cracking. Okay. When Kristen and I cheers... We cheers like 18th century Bostonians and we say huzzah. And also in this podcast series, (laughs) whenever I get excited about something, I'll probably say huzzah because it's like the equivalent of saying hurrah today. It's used for cheersing and just being excited about something. Yeah. So let's crack and then huzzah. Okay. All right. First huzzah. Ah, Huzzah. Huzzah. Mm, So this is, you know, honestly, pretty typically... American style IPA, when I what I taste, it's medium bodied. It has a lot of those citrus notes. I get a little bit of lime, grapefruit. I get like kind of floral notes, but it's mostly to me a really balanced beer. Yeah, it is balanced. When I just take another sip, the, the tropical fruits that come forward are papaya, mango. It also, I don't know if you can tell this, Brooke, but it has five different hop varietals in it. Which no, I it. can't tell that. <laughs> you, it's worth saying right off the bat, episode one, Kristen has a much more refined palate than I do. <laughs> well, we can all refine our palate with That's practice. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Back to the research of drinking. I also am getting just very subtle because this, like Brooke said, is is smooth, balanced. Nothing really stands out. But because of those different varietals, you get a little spicy, a little piney. You know, it has a lot going on, but not jumping off your tongue. So a good summer beer, potentially. And a good one to sip throughout a podcast. Exactly. We're going to be talking more about mobs later in this episode. (laughs) So to get us started with the namesake of this brewery, we're going to talk about the Portland Rum Riot of 1855. The mayor of Portland, Maine, in the early 1850s was a guy named Neil Dow. He was an outspoken prohibitionist. Boo. (laughs) <laughs> who locals called the no Nef- fun. <laughs> yeah. 
Locals <laughs> called him the Napoleon of Temperance, which I think is a cool nickname. I know Brooke disagrees. I mean, Napoleon. Who wants to be a Napoleon of anything? Prohibition, of course, won't come to the entirety of the United States until 1920 with the passing of the 18th Amendment. But Mr. Dow was ahead of the curve. He oh, worked. good for him. Oh, good for him, yeah. Well, but bad for, bad yeah, for us if yeah. we were living in Portland. So he worked to pass a law in 1851 that outlawed alcohol unless you had a doctor's permission. You heard that right. The history of medicine can be a little crazy. Alcohol was a normal treatment for a lot of medical ailments, but otherwise you couldn't drink it. So in 1855, Dow authorized a large shipment of alcohol into the city, but it was medicinal alcohol. So there's all this booze just sitting in a warehouse. All of Portland wants to drink it, but you can only get to it if you've got this pesky doctor's note. Tempers flared, especially among a large contingent of Irish immigrants who thought the prohibition was particularly prejudiced against them. Thousands of people ended up rioting outside the storehouse where the alcohol was kept. Dow called in the militia. Dang. Mm -hmm. Things got so out of control that members of the militia fired into the crowd. They claimed to have fired above the heads of these people rioting, but that's dicey because at the end of the day, they ended up killing one man and wounding several more. This is very sad. So sad. Now, a couple times in this podcast, we are going to be talking about mobs and violence that comes from them. We want to be clear that even if we get excited, because some of it's... <laughs> we do get excited. ...fun or funny or, you know, characters that we're rooting for, we do not condone this violence. That being said... Sometimes we will condone the consequences, because in this case, Dow lost his re-election bid. Ha ha, sucka! And the prohibition in Maine was repealed the very next year. So Liquid Riot Mob Scene is a great pairing to open this podcast series with. So they named their brewery after this riot. Exactly. Love it. So we know what we're drinking. Let's get this story started. All right. A couple introductory remarks for you to make the most of this podcast. We're going to be talking about events and people that you've heard before. Please meet the people anew in this podcast and form new thoughts about them. When listening, please also try your hardest to forget how the struggle ends. We know that's difficult, (laughs) but please try your hardest because it takes away from the drama if you're always expecting independence to be declared. Right, and you'll likely be surprised by a lot of what we're sharing. I know I was when I first heard about it. Now, the other thing to know is we're going to be referring to the people who rebelled against the British crown and its policies as rebels. That noun is also the verb that best defines their behavior. They're rebelling against the crown. Those colonists who remain loyal to the crown are going to be referred to as loyalists, which included crown officials and ordinary colonists who sided with the British Empire. They remained loyal. In each episode, we'll be highlighting a key player They'll be both rebels and loyalists, and those people will continue to appear in future episodes. I'm going to take another sip of my Mob Scene IPA, then let's get to it. Our story begins in Boston in 1763. We want to establish three things about Boston and its people in this first episode, because it's going to lay the groundwork for rebellion and thus this podcast. First... Bostonians love to drink alcohol. Huzzah! Huzzah! (laughs) We do too. Two, in 1763, many Bostonians were in economic crisis. And three, Bostonians liked to fight. 
Mob scene. (laughs) If you've been to Boston today, it's a big city. But colonial Boston was teeny tiny by comparison. It was a town of less than a thousand acres and a little longer than two miles from tip to tip. In 1763, the population was about 15,500 people, which would seem ridiculously small compared to the nearly 1 million people packed into London at the time. I just want to pause here. Two miles long, 15,500 people? (laughs) Mind blowing. Yeah, that's crazy. So tiny. But despite its small size, Boston was actually the third most populous town in North American colonies. Philadelphia ranked first at 20,000 people. In 18th century Boston, you could be nearly anywhere in town and smell salt air. The town was surrounded by water on nearly all sides. Because it was this small peninsula. Right. Now, you could get there by sea or land, but if you were going to come by land, you'd have to cross over the neck of Boston, a really narrow strip of land that was the only land route in and out. Once inside Boston, you'd be glad to know it was filled with taverns. Woo! One for nearly every 20 adults. Colonial taverns shaped the political culture. They were really important places. Hanging out in a tavern in Boston would help you to understand the current mood because men talked a lot about politics in these taverns. Newspapers were often also read aloud and then hotly debated. In the 1760s and 70s, Boston typically had five different newspapers operating. They were all unabashedly partisan. But a similarly sized town in England would be printing just one. So what Boston lacked in size and population, it made up for in opinions. (laughs) The town also had exemplary schools and several bookstores. And Massachusetts boasted a higher literacy rate than towns in England and other North American colonies. The newspapers would have kept Bostonians updated about the French and Indian War, which they had a particular interest in hearing about. We need to give a brief background on the war and why it was fought, because it's critical to why we're starting this podcast in the year 1763. The French and Indian War, it was known as the Seven Years War by Europeans, had been fought to extend British territory in North America and prevent the French Empire from encroaching on their trade and settlement. Both the British and the French tried to enlist the Native Americans to their sides, but individual tribes allied with whomever was most advantageous to their interests at the time. Good for them. Yeah, usually the French, they gave better presents. (laughs) The colonists throughout North America joined the British side and fought alongside the regulars of the British Army. This is part of a much longer struggle between Great Britain and France that goes back over a century. Right. But finally, in 1763, the war ends and Great Britain is victorious. That should have been positive, (laughs) but waging and winning the war only brings about more problems. Most significantly, Great Britain was in crippling debt after the French and Indian War ended. Wars have always been incredibly expensive, and this one is no exception. The British national debt of 72 million pounds at the beginning of the war had nearly doubled to 122 million pounds. And this is before the big debt ceilings that we're familiar with today, so they really needed to pay this down quickly. And it's not just the debt that's the problem. The British were also left with an empire so vast that they couldn't possibly control all of it. The new territory extended west of the Appalachians. Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in North America, General Thomas Gage. Remember his name. He'll come up throughout this podcast series. A lot. Yeah. He's really important and and a powerful man at this time. He estimated that 10,000 British troops would be necessary to guard this newly won territory. 
the crown couldn't afford to pay for that many troops. So in 1763, Parliament, which is the governing body, begins to think of new ways to raise revenue to both pay for the troops and pay down their debt. And they look to the North American colonists as the people who could pay some new taxes. The problem with that for Massachusetts is twofold. Well, it's <laughs> it's probably threefold because whoever wants to pay taxes, but here are the main reasons. First, Massachusetts contributed the most soldiers to fight in the French and Indian War from all the colonies. Over one third of the eligible fighting men from Massachusetts participated. These men weren't serving alongside the British Army because they believed in the goals of the empire, though. They were making a financial decision. Beginning in 1758, the Crown agreed to pay the soldiers at a generous rate, and men signed up in droves. This left Massachusetts dependent on Great Britain for payments, but we know that the mother country is essentially insolvent. Right, and by having the idea to pass new taxes, Great Britain is essentially asking the colonists to pay for the war twice. Mm -hmm. With their lives as soldiers, and then again as taxpayers. Yeah, and it's made worse by the fact that in 1763, Boston is economically depressed. The booming economy during the war had screeched to a halt when the war ended, and there wasn't a lot of available work in Boston. In a strong economy, men in Boston could work as merchants, sailors, and fishermen, all jobs dependent on business at sea. We know this is a maritime economy here in Boston, surrounded by saltwater. Some other jobs included longshoremen who unloaded and loaded goods from the ships and docks. Rope workers had the backbreaking job of creating rope to be used aboard the ships. Merchants imported and exported goods and were the top of the economic pyramid, employing many men to prepare their ships for sea. But now, many merchants in Boston are struggling financially, so the men they employ have less work or no work at all. You've now got a sense of the finances of this town and its mother country, and we'll get back to the streets of Boston after this quick break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast, and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. We want to give you a sense of the layout of the town because it leads to the third point we are introducing today. Bostonians like to fight. Woo! Mob scene IPA. <laughs> the first neighborhood after the neck of Boston was the South End, which was the largest part of town. Some familiar names lived here, including Samuel Adams and Benjamin Franklin, who was born in the South End. Now, if you've been to Boston today, there is a neighborhood called the South End, but it is not in the same location as the 18th century South End. As we mentioned earlier, the city has changed quite a bit. Right. At this time in the 18th century, the South End was bordered by Boston Common, a nearly 50-acre park. Boston Common eventually rose to Beacon Hill, the tallest hill in Boston. Beacon Hill earned its name from the beacon that topped it. <laughs> Colonists are very literal in their naming, which is going to come up a few more times in the podcast. The beacon was a wooden post whose top would be lit on fire to warn Boston and surrounding towns of danger. Beacon Hill was sparsely settled except for a few large houses, one of which belonged to John Hancock. Past the South End was the busiest street, King Street. The old state house was at the top of King Street, and that extended all the way down to Long Wharf. 
the aptly named Long Wharf stretched for a third of a mile into Boston Harbor. Again, literal names. Yeah. Uh, Wealthy merchants, including the hot-headed loyalist Richard Clark, often had their warehouses and offices where King Street met Long Wharf. In addition to the old state house, King Street also boasted a courthouse, a customs house, and several taverns. No surprise there. (laughs) Inns and shops. So this is really the political, social, economic center of Boston. A short walk from the old state house was Faneuil Hall, which functioned as a marketplace on the bottom floor and a town hall on the top. Out in front was a bustling market with stalls and small pushcarts. Right nearby was Union Street, which is where the Green Dragon Tavern was located, one of the largest and most popular taverns for rebels. Woohoo, and one of our faves. If you're looking for ladies of the night, not that Kristen and I are, but Boston has those too. Head on over to Ann Street in the North End, which is Boston's oldest and most crowded neighborhood. Now this is in the same location as the North End today. The North End housed diverse residents. Sailors and artisans like Paul Revere lived and worked here, as did families of privilege, including that of Thomas Hutchinson, Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. Now here's where the fighting comes in. There was a rivalry between the North and South Ends. Once a year, gangs within both neighborhoods got together and had a big fight, seriously. (laughs) This brawl happened on Pope's Day, which was November 5th. The origin of Pope's Day was Guy Fawkes Day, a holiday in England that commemorated Guy Fawkes' and other Catholics' failed attempt to blow up the Parliament building on November 5th, 1605. This also demonstrates the colonists' connection to the motherland. They are British, and they celebrate British holidays at this point. The Pope's Day celebration in Boston started during the day, with young boys and girls going to homes to solicit money for the festivities. The kids would then threaten to break some windows if they didn't get any money. Hmm. Little rugrats. (laughs) Then things really heated up at night. Each neighborhood gang would make a paper mache pope and devil, which they put atop their cart. Then each side would try to capture each other's pope. I love this. It's so amazing. Anyone that wants to bring back Pope's Day in Boston (laughs) with me, let's organize. Yeah, and then they'd brawl. Eventually, they'd burn and destroy the captured pope. It was a wild night, and it all happened downtown in plain view of Bostonians who weren't fighting. The night would be capped off with plenty of drinks. Let's drink to that. Woo, huzzah. Huzzah. It's a lovely beer. Mm -hmm. So we've got these rough and tumble gangs in Boston, and they have leaders, actually. It's not just a total (laughs) free-for-all. The leader of the South End gang was a man named Ebenezer McIntosh. He's our key player today. Finally, we get to him. Usually, our key players are going to come up a lot earlier, but we had to introduce Boston, also kind of a key player today, the (laughs) town itself. In 1764, McIntosh was in his late 20s and had fought in the French and Indian War. He was a shoemaker by trade and was elected by his peers to manage and head the Pope's Day celebration. Elections. Yes. And it's not, it's not a small deal to be elected. Macintosh would spend time mapping out strategies to capture the North End's Pope. It's I love amazing. it. I yeah. love it. He was also in charge of recruiting many of his gang members, which included rope workers and longshoremen. Who are tough, strong men, by the way, from all the work that they have to do. Strong men who had also, many of them, recently fought in the French and Indian War. They were veterans, too. In 1764, Kristen, Pope's Day got out of hand. But McIntosh hardly let that slow him down. Early on in the fight, 
a young boy around the age of eight was accidentally killed when the North End's cart ran him over. Some people thought that the fighting should slow or stop. Naturally. (laughs) But Macintosh pressed on and went on to capture the Pope of the North End, giving the South End their first victory in years. It's unbelievable. The leader of the North End gang was actually knocked unconscious and went into a coma for several days after this fight. So Macintosh is a man clearly committed to a cause, despite injuries or death of those around him. I mean, I want to give him credit for his dedication, but at the same time, really, we have deaths and comas and all that matters is getting that pope for the first time and bringing (laughs) that championship back. (laughs) What's even stranger, Kristen, is that Macintosh and the South and North End gangs weren't doing anything totally out of the ordinary by fighting. It's out of the ordinary for us today, but in the 18th century, the colonists had a tradition of violence which had immigrated with them from England. Such violence was even okay with some of the political leaders who understood that people might rebel from time to time to protest circumstances they felt were unfair. In 18th century Boston, this included uprisings about food supply, and two days of rioting to stop men from being impressed into the Royal Navy. So riots had a history. Magistrates might call out the local militia if force was needed to stop the riots. The militia, however, was composed of men within the community. So if most of them sympathized with the rioters or (laughs) were the rioters, there was little chance the riots would be stopped. There was a limit to how much people could rebel, though. Ooh, good thing there's some order in this town. (laughs) If the government was generally functioning well, mobs were not welcome. But if the crown pushed through unfavorable laws without the colonists' consent, the people had this effective mechanism in place to resist. So we've got a mother country in crippling debt, and her colonies are opinionated, often drunk, financially struggling, and (laughs) fighters. These two seem like they're on a collision course, especially when Parliament's solution to their debt is to tax the colonies. It's such a basic solution. (laughs) What are they going to tax? Well, that's the worst part. They're going to tax alcohol-related products. We know Boston likes their alcohol, so there's going to be trouble. Join us for the next episode. We can't wait to tell you what happens. And stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a sneak peek of what we're drinking next. Eager to learn more? We're at your service. Join Yield Tavern Tours, that's old with an E, when you're in Boston. Our company motto is, because beer makes history even better, which obviously helped inform this podcast. The tours are a social and fun way to learn about Boston's revolutionary and drunken history while enjoying craft beers and historic taverns. The tours are led by historians, including me and Kristen. If you won't be in Boston anytime soon, you can read the book I wrote, Boston and the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. It's available on Amazon. Next, we have something special on tap. Nettles Sour Brown Ale from Allagash Brewing Company. Love them. It's aged on rum barrels, which fits with the two taxes we'll be talking about on next episode. So grab some nettles and join us as beer makes history.